My guest today is Tom Bagri, founder and CEO of LifeSearch. Raised in apartheid South Africa, Tom emigrated to the UK in 1981, aged 20, and, not able to get a job, started out as a self-employed life assurance salesman. He sold savings, investments, pensions and mortgages, but the help life assurance gives to those at their lowest ebb always resonated most with him. LifeSearch proper began in 1998 when Tom and business partner Arthur Davies decided to build a financial services company that would avoid the tricks and the shortcuts and the hustle and the squeeze. They would do the right thing by the customer. And because that sounds like a do-gooding, wet, predictable mission that's begging to fail, Tom and co. could only succeed by committing to it, not just talking about it. In the earliest years, LifeSearch grew by word of mouth, the old-fashioned way. 22 years later, LifeSearch partners many of Britain's greatest personal finance brands to provide their customers with online protection comparison and expert protection advice. At the time of recording, LifeSearch has protected 639,922 families through over a million protection policies with a total value of something in the region of £133 billion worth of cover. And £22.6 billion of that cover has been sold in the last 12 months. They epitomise a successful business that is customer-centric at the core and which has a culture carefully designed and nurtured over more than 20 years. Tom talks about this in detail during the conversation and provides food for thought for anyone wanting to take bold and deliberate steps to design and manage their company culture so that it really puts customers first. Anyway, that's enough of an intro from me, so let's welcome Tom. Hi, Tom. First of all, welcome to the show and thanks so much for joining me today. Now, I've known you for many years and remember when you first started Life Search when I was working at Swiss Re, goodness me, back in the, the late 1990s. And I know that you started life in apartheid South Africa and came to the UK age 20, and that was 39 years ago. So sorry for revealing your age there. And started selling insurance. And today, Life Search is 22 years old. The UK's largest protection intermediary and writes more than 150,000 policies of life insurance, critical illness and income protection each year. I mean, do you feel like a classic immigrant success story? Perhaps you can give our listeners a, a bit of insight into your story and what makes you tick? Well, I suppose uh, there are elements of it. But I think for the story to be a classic, the immigrant should be penniless. And I, I was a middle, <laughs> middle class boy who had £4,000 in savings when he came over, which in 1980. T1 was not insignificant, perhaps uh, sort of third of the average national wage, uh, that sort of level. I think 12,000 might have been in about then. So, And I had a, a sister who was a nurse who had a spare room who I could uh, live with. So I was off to a, a good start. But what I couldn't do was get a job because I, unlike the rest of my family, I, I couldn't go to university because I couldn't afford to here and uh, couldn't, didn't, well, didn't want to stay in South Africa. So I had to get a job without a university degree, which proved far too challenging for me. So uh, I got a job as a self-employed salesperson. Uh, and in fact, never therefore really had a job other than those I created myself, if you see what I mean. And uh, yeah, so from a self-employed salesperson selling his first insurance policy in 1981 through to uh, the, what you just described is something of a success story. And I am an immigrant, but not a classic immigrant success story, no, Neil. <laughs> Okay. And um, I mean, tell us a bit about your early career. I mean, obviously, that must have shaped your your whole view of the life insurance industry and um, perhaps led you to to create life search in the way that you, you did. Tell us about the 80s and, and your role then and what you were doing. So the thing to remember, Neil, is that in the 1980s, insurance actually meant investment. 
So what we were out there selling was savings plans, pensions, and things called bonds. And that was the market of those days. Unit trusts came the world as well and we got onto those but that it didn't was unusual therefore that the first very first thing i sold which was a pension also had uh, elements of uh, disability insurance and life insurance attached to it mm. uh, because i thought that those were very important things to sell so i grew up in that world as did so many of us really uh, still uh, getting old today yeah it became pretty apparent to me that while I, what I built was a uh, uh, what was called an independent financial advisor and turned that into a wealth manager uh, and then a, a wealth advisor, I suppose, and then turned that into a financial planner, all of which I, I see as incremental qualitative steps mm. uh, on, on in the world of holistic financial advice, with I think financial planners being the absolutely the, the top of the tree when it comes to quality and thinking. Uh, in terms of what's right for customers. Uh, and so that, that, if you like, evolution carried on. But kind of uh, halfway through it in 1995, I, uh, I got the bug for protection. And so started Life Search in 1998. And that bug was simply caused by actual experience of claimants uh, and the benefits of, of the job I had done upon them. It's a story I tell to every new Life Searcher as being the, the, the rationale for the business and uh, you know why I started it. Because I think a business that is founded on uh, the good that it can do for a customer is, uh, is a delight, really. And I, I sort of happened upon it. And once I had, I got rather bored of making richish people richer or uh, more tax efficient or whatever. It just all seemed a bit second rate compared to the, or not second rate, just a bit less inspiring than getting money to people at the worst point in their lives, which is what Life Search now does. Yeah, fantastic. I, I mean, tell us a bit about Life Search and what, what role do you play in your customers' lives when you're, you're doing your job brilliantly? The first thing is that customers don't generally think about life insurance very much. So w when they do, uh, it's something that they really want to stop thinking about as soon as possible. So you, you have a moment in which someone is if you like thinking in terms of their financial responsibilities. Uh, and the trick, the duty of anyone in the protection business is, is to, I think, gather that impulse to do the financially responsible thing and convert that into a properly protected family. A family can have one person in it in my book, so that's fine. Uh, that is the duty of the protection advisor, but seller or person. It's what we should all be doing. We should all be working to facilitate that, whether at your end of the business or, or particularly at mine. So what LifeSearch does is it captures, as best it can, the client's impulse, often expressed through a price comparison site because we partner those, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes through a bank because we partner those, sometimes through a, a consumer affairs site because they recommend us, and uh, sometimes because the customer's heard of us directly. So however the customer comes to us, we need to capture their, their impulse. And typically what they're saying to us, the opening line uh, is very standard, uh, I want a quote for life insurance, which of course is not <laughs> what they really should want. They should right. want to understand their needs uh, and, and then resolve them. But that's okay. We can start off uh, with with you know helping them towards a quote for life insurance and take the conversation into all the areas it should go. That is what used to be called a salesman's job, but in practice, I, I think the word sales is now too tainted by the abuses 
that the financial services industry mm. has he- heaped on customers in in, in uh, my lifetime. And so I think it's important that we we say that we are we are not salespeople. We are advisors, and we advise. Of course, we compete against people who have no such qualms, but that's that's a different story. Mm-hmm. So the role we play in our customers' lives is to take their brief impulse to do the right thing by themselves or their family, and turn that into a proper protection package within their budget that fits their needs. And then obviously get that underwritten. In other words, choose the right companies to do it, not always easy, and then manage those companies. And we have a bunch called uh, a hit squad. And our hit squad comprises of uh, about 30 uh, highly experienced support underwriters from our side of the fence, if you like, who look at insurer decisions coming back into the uh, business coming back to us and who are entitled on their own bat to challenge them outright to work with the insurer to change them. And they have a success rate of over 40%, Neil, in getting insurers to change mm. something something about their first decision. All it right. might, might be a postponement shortened or it might be uh, a rating lowered. Uh, quite often, it's a rating done away with altogether or a postponement likewise, perhaps through the supply of further information or just through the drawing of the insurer's attention to some points that they might have missed. Mm. But that given the vast experience we have, our very low attrition rate means our our, uh, underwriting support people have huge experience insurer's decision-making processes. And uh, yeah, and perhaps also the clout we have because insurers do like to listen to us. It makes sense seeing we're such an important customer. So we take the customer through that process uh, and then after that, uh, the customer is on risk and we leave them in peace because, in truth, talk about what we do all the time. With select customers, we uh, log them on for a, a service call uh, within the first year. Uh, we do give everyone a welcome call where we go over what we've done insofar as they have the patience for that, but also just check direct debit dates and affordability and, and all that sort of stuff, and also set them up for our, our future service. So not everybody gets a call within the first year because, really, it would be an imposition for most people. But whenever we feel there is a need, that gets set up. The rest then get a call three, four, or five years in, depending on a whole bunch of different metrics. And there we just simply review their cover and check it's still right for them. And that process continues like that indefinitely, or rather not just for the life of the policy, because quite often that's another point when the policy expires. We call them again and say, do you want it to? And they go, no, I need some more. And off we go again. And then the only other touch point, apart from that ongoing servicing, actually there are two other touch points. The other is an email sequence, which is very high open rates, but that's at 50%. So obviously only half of our our customers are seeing them, generally speaking. And we call that project nurture. And that just helps the telephone-based process and makes it more accessible for those customers who frankly don't want to talk on the phone as uh, you know as much as we do. Uh, and then lastly, obviously, the retention team looks after those who's we get a lapse notification and we just call to check. And you know, a vast amount of the time, it's a direct debit cock-up or some other relatively trivial thing which just needs a fix. Yeah. But uh, you and I both know how in one's private life, <laughs> one is sometimes pretty slow to fix things. Mm. And uh, so then they can just all scale into a big problem and we nip in and sort that out. And for those who did mean to cancel it, we, we look to see if we can uh, arrange cover more in tune with their new budget or, or, or needs or whatever it may be. And mm-hmm. uh, we have a very high success rate of that. So it's a genuine, rounded, long-term relationship built around protection, which I think is is pretty unusual. I mean, I think um, in my experience from the industry, which I've been involved in for a very long time, as you know, it, it tends to be pretty much a one-hit wonder. And then the customer's kind of left to the uh, 
left to their own devices and um, the, the very infrequent communication that might come out from the office that's written the policy. So that is different, I think, from my perspective. Yes, I think possibly not if you came from an IFA or financial planning perspective. But then, <laughs> post RDR, those uh, those guys don't write much protection at all. So, no. yeah, <laughs> or rather, they, they, they're lots that do. But yeah, uh, the the end result is that it shouldn't be unusual. But in truth, of the larger scale businesses in the market, uh, Life Search is really the only one that conforms to a classic advice stereotype. Mm. There are lots of excellent small advisory businesses, but uh, it doesn't seem easy for them to achieve the scale that we have. And uh, the other ways of achieving the scale are essentially to be a sales outfit uh, and not an advisory outfit. And there, any long-term relationship is based simply upon making more sales. Uh, so yep. it's pro- probably one that customers reject, I would have thought. Yeah, no, absolutely. If I could move on, I mean, I, I'd love to just dig in a little bit into the culture of the business and your people. I mean, you, you on your LinkedIn profile, I read you, you said, I love leading the ACE Life Search team, now 21 years in the growing. I think our culture and values are our greatest asset and is what has made us the UK's largest and most awarded protection intermediary. Now, I mean, anyone can say words like that, but having come to your site in Milton Keynes and met your guys, you know, I, I do sense a very strong culture. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the culture that you've got and how you sort of nurture that to do the right thing by your customers and indeed by your people themselves. It's a long story. Uh, I'll try and tell it briefly, though, as if, you've already re- if you've already realized that's not my forte. Having started as a financial advisor, you realize, or I realize, that treasuring your client is, is the way to succeed. So when I recruited people to do the job over the phone, I didn't see that there was any difference in that. And so I developed a, a thing which I call the life search ethos which I'll just explain in, in tiny terms, very briefly. Mm. Uh, it, it's that above all, the key human behavior that is needed to be a good professional is, is honesty. But honesty is a, a very slippery fish because you know, a professional who tells the client the whole truth will bore the client absolutely rigid. Mm-hmm. So, so you've got to make the decision, honest decision as to what the client needs to know in order to make the right decision, and that's what you tell them. Mm-hmm. Now, abuse that and you're a salesman and a con man. So you need to understand the, the deeper truths behind honesty. And that took me into the next step for me is personal responsibility. We are at our most honest when we are taking personal responsibility. When yeah. we're not doing that, we're something else. Mm-hmm. We're, we're gliding along the corners and the cracks, really. So personal responsibility was my, is my demand of every life searcher who's ever joined take personal responsibility because that will mean that you are are honest except that the problem in a corporate context is that personal responsibility can take get you into a lot of trouble mm-hmm. because yeah. you go the extra yard you speak out you think you're empowered and all of a sudden your leadership find, finds that uncomfortable or you've made a cock up first up there's no doubt about that and suddenly you're in 10 times more trouble than you would otherwise be and so the life search ethos, the third part, honesty, personal responsibility, is, is something, a, a pair of words I stuck together that I've never heard anyone else use, and that is corporate humility. Mm-hmm. And my definition, which again, every life searcher hears within a few weeks of joining of corporate humility, that there is no one in the company that hasn't made at least as many mistakes as anyone else. 
We just do all make a lot of mistakes. And I go on to point out that I will have made more than any of them. And they work out under my questioning that that's because I'm older, but also because I built life search. And if you build big businesses, you make more mistakes than people who don't. The more you the more you achieve, the more mistakes you make. That's how it goes. So they get that. Uh, and they also get this concept of corporate humility. Uh, and then I complete the cycle by talking about tolerance, because corporate humility fosters a, 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 a vibe of tolerance, and tolerance is the absolute prerequisite to honesty. Mm -hmm. Tolerance in a regulated business, tolerance in a large institution is very rare. It, yep. All of them tend to be rules governed. And we all have experience of an intolerant environment because we all went to school and we all lie, lied through our teeth throughout our school careers at every <laughs> opportunity we were given because that kept us out of trouble. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have that combination, I think, of four things to create a truly customer-centric culture. And I invented that. That's that, that was what I started thinking I should talk to them about. And I've been doing it ever since. I haven't actually changed it at all over 22 years, which may be... Uh, a lack of imagination, but it just works for me and for the business. And it works for people too, because uh, it's just fact that people love working at LifeSearch uh, and love the way we do things uh, and love the way we care for them. And I've done lots of other things. I, I became explicit about it back in the early noughties that our culture would be customer first, our people second, and our profits third. And I've held to that all the way through. When you bring an investment decision to the board at LifeSearch, it has to face that hurdle. And then in 2007, had to face another hurdle when we invented our purpose. And mm -hmm. our purpose, you know what, I'll take you into all of that later. But, but mm -hmm. and then later on, we developed a set of values. And I can talk about that if you want me to. But essentially, the culture at LifeSearch has been a driving force from its start. It hasn't mm -hmm. always been perfect. It's been riddled with mistakes. See what I said earlier. <laughs> and, uh, but it is uh, undoubtedly now our key USP as a business. And I, I regard our culture as our greatest financial asset and challenge accountants to value it, but they can't yet. No, 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 absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. And, um, you know, whenever we work with an organization that has strong elements of customer centricity everything you've just talked about there is, is great to hear it because it's usually the essence of you know just the, the the natural interaction that people have with customers has to come from within them and, and therefore to instill that in people and be tolerant particularly feels like a, a, a huge step in that I mean how do you find people that kind of align to that? I'm guessing recruitment and training play a massive part in in all of that because you've got to find people that are aligned to that Yes. No, you do. We, I mean, we started uh, explicitly saying uh, we recruit on culture first and then talent experience and all the rest a few years ago. But in practice, I think we probably always had or have. The truth is a really good culture is a very fragile thing. Mankind does not revert to a norm of mankind reverts to something less good naturally. So if you want to create a space in which you take a, a culture that is, if you'll forgive me, simply better and lovelier than that which uh, is uh, prevalent in the whole world, uh, then you need to nurture it every day. You mm -hmm. need to talk about it. I mean, I, I, I delivered our end of your conference speech. It was the whole thing was on this subject. Uh, my ten minutes on on Zoom, and uh, the it, it is a constant effort of leadership at all levels in the business to demand of your people that they respect the values and live by them, but then to move on to that, to 
you just <laughs> make it all very natural, which is, is where we really are now. But that is after 22 years of, uh, of, of getting there. And it, it can be broken at almost any stage by a, a wrong decision, a wrong word, a wrong attitude. Certainly when I come eventually to recruit my own uh, replacement as the business's leader, it will be my uh, my number one criterion by a country mile. Yeah, I can imagine. And I mean, you, you mentioned purpose um, earlier. You were going to tell us about it. But I, I mean, c- can we just pick it up now? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing as part of your your cultural reinforcement that you do almost on a daily basis, I'm guessing that is right at the heart of everything. Uh, yes and no. It actually sits one level back. So the ethos is, is is the kind of the forest floor, if you like, and then the uh, the, the purpose is is just it, it, it's the wood that you can't see for the trees. Uh, so we don't talk about the purpose that much, okay? But it, 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 we do uh, on a regular basis. It's the values we talk about all the time, okay. uh, because the purpose again it does drive the decisions at board level. It starts with the words to love, because I can't really think of having a purpose that wouldn't include that. Why would I want to do a job I didn't love? Mm-hmm. I might have to. <laughs> I might have to do horrible jobs. But actually, if I'm going to have a purpose, it would be to love doing what I do. Mm-hmm. So to love getting more people than anyone ever thought possible. So it has an infinite element to it. That was something I learned from a Harvard Business School lecture mm-hmm. in 2002 or three. It has an infinite element to it to protect themselves, their families and their businesses in the ways that we know are best for them. So uh, the, that's just protection in a nutshell. So the interesting bits of it are, are, are the, the uh, to love bits at the front, uh, which can easily be dismissed as a corny cliche, but it just flipping isn't. And uh, the, um, the infinite ambition, which is still very much, very much alive and being moved towards every day. Really interesting. Thank you. And it, again, I can affirm it, you know, having visited um, the team uh, in Milton Keynes, and you know, you you very kindly set up a number of conversations with people at all levels in the organisation, and and some have been there a very long time, and some had only just arrived, and they were very naturally talking about this in their own words. What I loved about it was that it wasn't, it didn't feel like a hackneyed phrase that was being recited, wrote. It was very much their own interpretation of it as it, as it related to them, which I thought was an incredibly powerful part of if you like, the secret source behind the organization in terms of how you then ultimately interact with your customers. So, yeah, very interesting for you, you to share that. In terms of things like charitable work, if I could just pick up on that. I mean, I know that you guys do a lot of charitable work, charitable giving. And again, it seems to be something that comes up time and time again. When you're talking about a company and you, you use a wonderful phraseology there about, you know, just a nicer place than perhaps humanity would naturally be. I mean, does that play a big part in getting involvement and getting people to think about, you know, more than just if you like their paycheck? Do you know, for, for many years it didn't because I didn't feel it was an employer's job to tell people what they should do in this regard. Uh, that changed. The leadership within the business told me that it should, so so I went along with them quite happily. Uh, and now it is a huge part of our our uh, conversation internally. Uh, about that time, I um, looked at a dictionary uh, and remembered an old uh, bit of, of uh, education and uh, the fact that the Greeks have four words for love. Uh, some people say they have six or, or so, but anyway, four words for love. Uh, is the, the the way I understand it. And I won't take you through all of them. You can look it up on, on Google. But one of them is agape. Um, uh, and agape can be translated as the love of the good you can do for others. Okay. It is the warm feeling you get when you, uh, you, you, you buy a poppy or 
make some other charitable gesture. Uh, yeah. And uh, I built a, a, an end-of-year conference speech uh, on that and on how that was the, the logical extension of our, our uh, culture. And from that speech is when we... Um, we kind of took off, did I say four years ago, six years ago, 2014, I'm getting old. Uh, and that then our charitable side took off. And basically, we just support people who who, who raise funds. We have uh, quite a few causes that we support as a business, but we support our people's efforts. Uh, and then and that individual fundraising as a collective is, is quite huge. But also, we have a thing called Life Search Lives, where we uh, seek out those with connections to us, uh, clients, our people know uh, stories that come to us uh, where a relatively small amount of money can make a huge amount of difference to one family. And it's not a registered charity. It's, it's not, we haven't taken it there yet. One day we might. But it is simply a way of going, OK, here is a problem in Leeds or in Milton Keynes or in London. We can solve because we have money and they don't. So they need it so we can do that. And, and the impact of that highly personal approach, which actually takes far more Time. Uh, it's, it's very tough to do because mm. it takes a lot of time, and, and you know, time is money. Ha ha. So uh, th- uh, that has a huge impact on on just the way people feel about the company and what it's about, and, and the whole uh, lockdown thing. I think uh, you want to get onto that later. But the whole way we've managed lockdown is again uh, just to build on all of this stuff. Okay, well, we'll come back to that definitely. Thank you for sharing that. Again, it's um, it's great to hear and understand how that gets built into the fabric of the organisation, and um, it's interesting to hear that you you didn't start there and how that came to fruition. So, thank you. Okay, let's move. On. One of the things that occurred to me, I mean, I've been around the life protection sector on and off for about thirty odd years. I mean, I I started my career at Legal in General and was a product manager in the early nineties, um, and it, it it's never been a glamorous industry uh, in my view, but was always played an incredibly important role. And, and as a, a product manager, the frustration of trying to get that message across, I, I can feel it now. I mean, it was uh, it was a real challenge. I mean, it's, it's relatively straightforward when you're buying it alongside a mortgage or something that kind of drives you to, to think about it, or you just have to do it because you're told to by somebody. And, you know, there are fantastic people in the sector who work day and night trying to do this. And yet we, we still sort of struggle with that conundrum. I mean, why why is it so hard to to see the need and buy the cover, do you think? I think the, uh, the, whole, the, the whole human bias is towards optimism. It's vitally important that we have that. It's what keeps us going. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so protection, protecting against absolute catastrophe, and certainly in the case of life insurance, over, while people are of a working age, you know, an extremely rare catastrophe, you know, that, that's something a lot of people duck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and need a good reason to spend the money on that as opposed to pleasures of, of the day. I think society's become ever more focused on the short term, on the pleasures of the day. Uh, and uh, that's been to do with the relatively benign e- e- economy we've lived through the last few generations, I suppose, since the uh, Second World War. Uh, and so progressively insurance, which was in the 50s, a central part of uh, British culture and and. Uh, uh, American culture too has faded out as being something that you buy sometimes if someone persuades you to. I suppose I don't know. So you know that's just natural. That's a mm. demographic thing. That it could be changed by marketing. It could be changed by lots of things. And and as you will remember, we have had a go at a few of those and not got very far. But uh, the truth is, you can't change the uh, the world. What you can do is is as I said at the beginning, make sure that when the brief impulse to do something 
sensible about this happens in a consumer's mind, a person's mind, that they are uh, that that impulse is nurtured, uh, right. fostered, and developed into protective family. That's what you can do. Yep. Now, I think uh, the, the the zeitgeist may be changing due to the sudden fear of death we all now. Uh, live with somewhere in the background of our minds if we're young or somewhere in the very foregrounds of our minds if we're uh, if we're uh, post-retirement age that is a uh, yeah th- th- this is changing and we're seeing that in terms of uh, our customer behaviors they're happy to go into more depth and, and talk for longer they lapse their policies less uh, often or, um, uh, and they take the whole thing a bit more seriously than um, than was true in the past mm. so yeah it's not a problem. People aren't that uh, interested in our subject. It doesn't make our subject any less worthy. And uh, right now, consumer interest, I think, is is growing. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And I mean, you talked about awareness. I mean, what what are some of the best initiatives that either you've seen or been involved in, and not necessarily just on life, you know, life assurance protection, but critical illness income protection as well. There's been a few around, hasn't there? Well, what kind of stuff have you been involved in that you think works well, has worked reasonably well? Yes, I think the the key problem in in terms of marketing initiatives is that for those who have the money to do them, i.e. the insurance companies, uh, the target is not actually the consumer. The target Mm. is is the advisor. Mm. So there are lots of excellent campaigns focused on advisors. And uh, do all of them uh, do that much good at growing the market as opposed to winning market share? You know, they do a bit. The most successful of those was meant to have a broader focus, but it never quite got the budget from the insurers to get to its consumer focus. So it really focused in on advisors was was in the disability or income protection uh, market, where uh, the Seven Families Initiative mm. from the Income Protection Task Force really did galvanize a lot of advisors, Life Search included, to make far more of an effort to talk to consumers, customers about uh, the slightly more complex to explain, but nonetheless far more vital policy for most working people uh, of, of income protection rather than life insurance. The obvious mega marketing campaign that has been a, a great success is, is Vitalities. But then again, that success is not really in causing lots of consumers to ring up and say, I'd like critical illness, please. Hmm. Uh, again, Vitality have built a, a huge broker support network to make sure that advisors recommend Vitality because of all the excellence in their product. Uh, and it's Vitality Health that is the the, uh, the key winner, I think. Vitality Protection, the secondary winner to mm. their uh, their Dachshund inspired um, campaign, mm. or the Dachshund led campaign, I should say. But also their uh, their uh, absolutely groundbreaking effort to to make insurance policies useful during their life, not just at, at the point of claim. Yeah. Nowadays, of course, almost all insurers have a package of benefits. Uh, no one really manages to copy the Vitality uh, suite uh, of of progressive self-help tools to quite the same extent, but um, the whole market does now ensure that its policies offer great value to, to those who are not claiming if they care to take up the ancillary benefits. So uh, as to initiatives, no, there really isn't anything there apart from seven families and vitality that I would class as being uh, w- you know, world-class or brilliant. Mm. But then again, I know the reason why, uh, and that is that because um, I tried to build one of these myself at the at the uh, turn of the decade 10 years ago now and got all the insurers engaged it was we were all very keen everything was going fine uh, until we got to the commercials and the problem with the commercials is that when an insurer makes a market uh, of customers the, the customers don't come to the insurer they come to advisors 
and advisors then distribute the business across lots of different insurers. Mm. So the, the primary marketing insurer really gets a very diffuse yeah. result from the tons of small, disparate businesses that constitute the advisor force across the UK. That could change. There are now advisors like us who are quite big enough to um, you know, constitute a, a, a market in themselves uh, and insurers who perhaps are keener to explore reaching the consumer through particular advisory firms of scale who can manage the, the whole result of a marketing drive. But not, nothing's actually happening yet. No. So uh, we'll, see. we'll see. I do no. think actually in any market, any really good market, it's the retailers who spend the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. you, you don't get milk uh, producers advertising a lot. You, you get um, supermarkets advertising a lot. Yeah. So but the trouble is our, um, our manufacturers are vastly bigger businesses than our distributors. Yeah. Uh, I aim to change that eventually. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's really interesting. When you were talking, I remember, goodness me, when it, at one time at Swiss Rim when we were building the insurance report for the year, if you remember that thing, and um, we were looking back through the archives and there was a campaign that I think was run or coordinated by the ABI uh, in the 60s. And it was about Fred. They, they created a character called Fred who looked a little bit like a home pride man sort of marching around as a cartoon character representing the life assurance industry. But interesting enough, the icon was of a salesperson going out, or a salesman with his briefcase. And it was about getting the strength of the industry around you um, from life assurance. And that's probably the the last national television campaign that was run by an industry uh, like that. And I think it was quite effective at the time in terms of raising awareness. And certainly organizations like the Pru at the time benefited hugely from that awareness building. So maybe we'll, we'll see another one that you can create at some point. And I mean, the whole theme of this series is all about the rise of the customer. I mean, you've, you've talked very clearly about the fact that you're, you're almost trying to catch people when they're already falling. Yeah, you know they're, they're sort of um, they're they're in the mode that they they've been nudged into it, and customers don't seem to therefore have risen really in this market. I mean, maybe the the price comparison sites offer a good place where they can start to interface with the market, but there doesn't seem to be much empowerment for customers. I mean, maybe apart from the vitality proposition, would you agree with that proposition or or not? I suppose what does empowerment mean in this context? Mm. It, it must mean the uh, being being sufficiently educated in a matter to know what you're doing to be able to make decisions for yourself that are good decisions. Would that be a decent definition? Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you've never heard of income protection, if those two words mean nothing to you, as they do, as they they don't for uh, the vast majority of the population, then you you can't be empowered in the matter of disability insurance because you don't know enough. You have to ask someone. And if you're asking people, you're not empowered, are you? Mm -hmm. So uh, if you've heard of critical illness, but you've no idea what it is, other than self-evidently it's something to do with being very ill and presumably money coming out, then, yeah, again, you've got to start asking questions. You're not empowered. In life insurance, I think consumers are very empowered about it. They know what to do, and they, they, they ring up price comparison sites, or rather they, they go online and they, they you know, get through and buy it online quite happily, lots of it. And, and that, that's fine. So I think they are empowered in the matter of life insurance, but actually – not entirely wrongly, they see it as a low priority purchase because the risk of it happening in your working life is very low, mm. very, very low. But obviously, it's catastrophic and it is cheap. So if they knew how cheap it was then and how easy it was to get for most of them, then, yeah, they would be more empowered. But these gaps in knowledge are, you could say they're the industry's fault, 
but then no industry runs a sort of information campaign. No. You know, you, you, you inform customers through your marketing, advertising and selling them things. Um, the difficulty with financial services, of course, is that if you're a sales-based organization, then you're probably not the right person to empower a customer at all. You're the <laughs> right person to mislead them because you sell them what you want to sell. Uh, mm. And for example, a, a huge chunk of the industry really has no access to income protection because they refuse to give advice. And if you refuse to give advice, income protection is probably too complex a product for you to communicate to customers uh, uh, about. And therefore, they simply don't mention it. <laughs> and yeah. you think, yeah. Mikey, that's, uh, that's, that's disempowering if you don't even mention something to a customer. Mm. But no, I, I honestly think the, uh, the, the job of the industry is to establish in the customer's mind the idea of the, their insurance needs. And if we could do that somehow, that would be the, the need for a marketing campaign. That would be the primary driver of it, in my view. Uh, and then the consumer would, would get it and would start to become keener on learning a bit more and then would become empowered. Right. So, so that's the that's the sort of the circular argument that doesn't get us anywhere. But uh, <laughs> uh, the, the only way to break it is to spend a hell of a lot of money uh, and and manage the uh, the results of that very uh, very brilliantly. Yeah, no, no one's brave enough yet. I, I can feel the headache that I used to have coming on thirty years ago when I was uh, was managing the product set. So uh, it was uh, <laughs> hasn't changed much by the sound of it. So interesting. Let, let's. I mean, we mentioned it earlier, but let's move on to to this year. Let's move on to twenty twenty. It's been a complex and difficult year globally. Obviously, stupidly simplistic statement to make, but and you know we're we're into the next phase of restrictions due to COVID nineteen having peaked again. I mean, how have you and your colleagues dealt with this and managed to keep not only looking after one another but also looking after your customers? It's been a hoot. It really has. You know, in two thousand and eight, I tell the story a lot now. One of my uh, advisors, Dave Ball, wanted to live in Ipswich because his girlfriend, Joanna, was a nurse there and he was working in Milton Keynes. Uh, and so he, he uh, sort of came to us and said, I think I'm going to have to resign unless you want to open a branch in Ipswich. And uh, we thought about that because Dave is a lovely bloke and he probably could run a branch for us, but we, we couldn't do, make the decision. So we said, well, why don't you become the branch? <laughs> you go to Ipswich. And we'll see. And we invented working from home. We had to invest a bit. It wasn't that much. We got Dave working. It wasn't that good. But he got there. He did it. He went through the ups and downs. Dave and Joanna and uh, us are still together as a happy threesome. And um, the end result is that we realized that it was quite doable to get people to work from home. And so we, we did it. You know, We had at that stage a very young workforce, but they were becoming mums and dads. Uh, some of them meeting at Life Search and becoming mums and dads uh, through us. We're very proud of all of them, quite a few Life Search babies. And um, the uh, uh, end result was that they needed more flexible working, and we just began to experiment with it. You know, uh, our, our customers first, our people second. So, well, the whole world has just found out how effective it is to work from home, or can be, if you're in uh, in essentially a a job that doesn't involve manual labor, then, um, yeah, so we, we've known about all of that for years. Uh, and so we moved to the cloud very early. We uh, had a massive IT refresh, uh, as it happened in December 2019, triggered by the demands of cloud IT or cloud technology. And we uh, issued everyone with laptops because it was the only way to, to deal with the flexibility we were giving them. Uh, and so come uh, COVID in March, it really wasn't anything more than um, carry on. 
Mm. Just uh, the offices are closed. Please work from home, and, and everybody did. I mean, lots of chaos and, and 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 confusion internally within families, but not in terms of of work and output. That never blinked. We went swiftly into that. Our people second, remember, we went swiftly from that continuing of provision to customers into a uh, a simple process of asking everybody how they were and what they needed mm. and what their their issues were. And we found two broad categories uh, struggling most. The one was those who were on their own. They, they lived in their own flat. They lived on their own. Uh, and they were very lonely. Uh, oh, getting more lonely, I should say, because we started this very early when it was all novel. Uh, and then the other was uh, those who either shared flats with others and, and therefore there were chaos there or had young children and obviously homeschooling and had partner, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you either had the lonely sufferer or the chaos sufferer. And uh, the lonely were easy to help. We just had to reach out to them a lot. And their leaders and managers made sure that there were all sorts of contact programs and, and stuff to do, the evening fun and all of that. So it was just, a, a, that was easy. Sorting out the chaos and indeed recalcitrant partners whose employers weren't as understanding about as, as we were, uh, was not so easy. Although I think we only lost one colleague to that issue. But the... I mean, we made we made no one redundant. We furloughed no one. Uh, that that wasn't our, ever going to be our response to this. And as it happens, the profits didn't take a knock because that is a that's a surprising learning from uh, the the values piece. Uh, you can get away with stuff that you can't if your values aren't right and your mm. culture isn't strong. Mm. So we got away with it. Well, we didn't get away. With it. We put a lot of time and effort into it, but uh, we did get through it. The uh, with chaos, we simply let people decide for themselves how they wanted to cope, and we said, do what you can when you can. Right. And by and large, they worked odd hours and different hours and didn't, didn't, their performance didn't uh, suffer for any prolonged period through, you know, it did suffer from time to time, but there was no sort of, there was nothing that in normal circumstances would have got them into a disciplinary environment or whatever. It just didn't happen. They just tried flipping hard to cope with their complex, with their complex issues because they, uh, I think they felt they, they wanted to help us uh, help them. And that is a uh, that's a little trick, which uh, your listeners will have to accept as copyrighted because I haven't yet uh, formulated and published it. But the uh, trick in running an altruistic business, a business that it's uh, I hate the word employees, uh, uh, the people who work in it or work with it, the thing that happens to them is that when they are set an example by their employer that is essentially altruistic, it does look you know, to give. You have to look after yourself first, otherwise you can't. You haven't got what you need to give. So so altruism includes an element of selfishness, of course. But if the essential driver is seen by the employee, for want of a better word, as altruistic, then a funny thing happens over time when it stops being a, yeah, they would say that, wouldn't they? And it moves into a generally accepted part of the business. And then it becomes a, actually quite a strong belief. People have you know, developed in the thing you're doing. Uh, and a real loyalty to it, uh, then actually the altruism gets played back uh, from the by the employee as first my customer, second my company, third me, and that's weird. Mm. Mm. <laughs> that's that's not how it normally works, or how it should work, for goodness' sake. Any trades union leader with his or her salt would, would uh, roar me out of court, you know. Uh, but actually. They don't serve those who work in altruistic businesses. Mm. I hesitate to call life such an altruistic business. It's profit. It's a profitable business. 
and we make sure that we achieve a good margin on things that we do. But uh, the underlying code is is the one, two, three I've described several times now. And uh, yeah, that is altruistic in its basis. Thank you so, for sharing that. Yeah. When you do that, you can get through COVID, provided you are lucky enough to work in an insurance market and not uh, entertainment or, or yeah. leisure or any of the others that really... Oh, I don't know how I would have coped just having a business smashed out from underneath me by uh, by the uh, decisions of others, really. Yeah, no, it's been difficult. And, you know, we've all experienced it. But that, that's so interesting to hear how that underpin stretches out to people's homes and, and, and is there uh, as part of the glue that holds the organisation together, even in a crisis like that. So, again, very, very useful understanding. I've got my wife uh, popping in and out of uh, this room, uh, Neil, uh, while I talk to you. And I... Um, yeah, she had a very interesting response. We, we, we own the business, as a, a, you know, I started it, um, and, and we're the majority shareholder, shall I say. And while I'm the CEO, she sits on the board uh, as a non-exec, and uh, she took it upon herself to uh, start engaging with those who were hardest hit, people who had lost a parent or grandparent, whether mm. to COVID or just to, to you know, all the other issues or just whatever. Uh, and she started engaging with that. And I was quite skeptical of it at first, the boss's wife thing. And um, the reaction from our people to her engagement with them at a personal level was uh, phenomenal, mm. absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and that, that really gave me a good example of leadership in action. People expect leadership from their leaders, but when they get leadership from shareholders, that then is an entirely different thing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think I think the company has been astounded by um, the reaction. To, it was amazed by Alison's behaviour, but uh, astounded by the reaction to it. And it wasn't a corporate plan; it just arose out of an individual uh, desire to help. Anyway, Very your next your next question. No, oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, no, I mean it, it's kind of along similar theme, really. I mean, it's just reflecting just a little bit more deeply. I mean, obviously, it's the, the pandemic has created a, a real coming together in communities within businesses both in the uk and across the world and but at the same time during 2020 there was a lot of other things happening inequalities prejudice hate many aspects of society and i was just wondering on that slightly more negative side of it i mean how has that affected you do you feel that that overlay has also added other things that are going to leave a lasting impression on us as companies us as leaders um, going forward well, I think one should start with a positive first, Neil. You know, I, I, I talk about life search, uh, we're talking about life search as if it was exceptional. I do think that uh, versions of what I've been describing have been played out across some of the most impersonal employers and some, you know, whole, whole vast communities have looked after each other and cared for each other in a way we haven't seen, perhaps because we didn't feel the need for generations. So yeah, there is a hugely positive side effect, which you, you did mention, a coming together within communities across the globe. I, I think that has uh, has been a vital part of this. Um, and yes, it's made the contrast with uh, the racist and, uh, and prejudiced behavior we've seen um, across our screens, just dramatic and frightening. Mm. And that in turn, though, has led to a, a hugely heightened consciousness amongst, if you like, I don't know, the caring half. That's That sounds prejudiced in itself. But yeah, certainly. Uh, well, let me talk about what I know. Within Life Search, we we, uh, we found that forming the, the, uh, the, the BLM Film Club 
the book club, or, or, which was there, but which then took on Maya Angelou stories and, and lots of the others as the books to read. The one that made a particular impression from me is, is why I've stopped talking to white mm. people about race, which is an extremely constructive book. It doesn't sound it from its title, uh, but it's an extremely constructive and interesting and educated book that um, has, has opened up uh, new thoughts in my mind, for sure. So what life did was simply establish a very clear leadership principle that I suppose you could say was woke and, and, and obviously what, what one should say. But I think the key with all of these initiatives, all of the, this kind of goodness, is it's not where you start, it's how you keep going. Right. Yep. Does, does, the, does the, the, the chief exec keep talking about it? Mm. Does he move on? Does she come back to the issue from time to time? whenever there is a, ra a reason to just raise it out of the blue, not wait for some societal thing to happen. Mm. So we've kept talking. Indeed, I was on a, uh, a call with uh, the, the uh, a group of leaders in the business this morning, and I was talking to them about uh, a bunch of work we're doing uh, in highlighting uh, the issues of those living with invisible disabilities, such as deafness or uh, uh, chronic back pain. And... Uh, yeah, we've got a series of vlogs our people have written and, and just drawing attention to that. So suddenly, uh, or not suddenly, there is a continuous emphasis now on these underlying societal ethical issues. Right. Um, that, that is just something we see now as part of our leadership curve, if you want. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Did that answer your question? It sure. does. No, absolutely. And again, the reason why I'm delving into something that's pretty deep here is, again, it's, it, it's self-evident to myself and my colleagues given the fact that we see so many businesses and work with so many businesses, that those that either aspire to or do deliver a very good customer experience, it's even if they're digital businesses, it's usually because at the heart of it, you have a culture which is caring, is nurturing, and it, it espouses and drives the values which are quite deliberate. And you explain very clearly about how you you sort of, you know, you created and, and set out with those that intent and, and of you know, gradually instilled it into the organization. But so, yes, you have answered my question fully because, you know, it's really, really interesting to hear somebody like yourself talk about these things that go on because ultimately what's the manifestation of that on the surface? It's, it's, it's the life search brand and it's the way in which you interact with your customers. Ultimately, that's what gets delivered. And uh, it's fascinating to see how that gets pulled through from inside. So, so thank you for sharing that. Very interesting. Final question, really, before we sort of look at future, and I, I ask this to all of my guests, and, and it's really just pulling on the theme of the series, really. I mean, what do you think being truly customer-centric means? Already answered, Neil. Customer first, your people second, your profits third. Full stop. That's Thank it. You. How, Thank do you. You how do you deliver that? Well, I've told you about the ethos, but then you have to frame the values of the business and I just want to give you ours very briefly because this call wouldn't be complete without it Please or this conversation. We, we did a, a classic corporate co-creation exercise in 2012, which uh, was, was there to establish our values as our business. We, we developed a cultural statement, which, to be frank, we never, never really caught on the cultural statement. Uh, but we had the purpose and we had the ethos and uh, we created the values. So we asked everybody to we hired professionals who took us through the process. I bet you've done it at least once in your life. And uh, we ended up with, as the rule book say you should, five words that defined our, our values. And I'll tell you what they are in a minute, but the big difference is that we then built a whole intranet, and Yammer, we've used that particular package, but a whole intranet and internal kind of Facebook feed, if you like, 
communication, social media platform internally, which we built specifically to serve those values. Uh, and we put a whole lot of daily elements into the communication we have with each other, which just serve as reminders of the behaviors that support the values, that mm. supports the culture, that delivers the, uh, the, the customer-centric organization. So we didn't just, again, as I said earlier, didn't just do them. We keep doing them day after day after day. In fact, I do very little else. <laughs> That's really what I do, <laughs> do in the business. I've got excellent commercial directors, finance directors, and everything else. So uh, my job uh, is, is focused very much on, on cultural leadership. The values themselves are fascinating uh, to me. Uh, the team ignored my suggestion of humility. I mean, they came up with their own five. The only one you could describe as a business one, I'll give you first because it's a bit obvious, it's excellence. Mm -hmm. But that's a business ambition. The others are tolerance, care, openness, and honesty. And you think, okay, that's that's nice. Uh, what we actually use those for is, is we deliver excellence through those. We didn't realize that was the plan, but that, that's what it is. And the, uh, the odd thing again about them is that tolerance and care are almost synonyms. I mean, you've only got five words of the whole English language. Would you really use those two up? You know, uh, two, uh, two choices up with those two? Why don't go for one or the other, mate? And then openness and honesty? Well, for goodness sake, that's so close. You know, really, they are almost synonyms. Uh, and I didn't know why. I didn't think why. I just said, okay, that's it. That's fine. That's what we said we are. That's what we'll be. And we kept using the words until eventually I realized that actually what allows you to care for your customers is your internal tolerance. Mm. Uh, your tolerance of, of difficult customers, of rude customers, of difficult people. We've always said we tolerate idiosyncrasy because idiosyncrasy can teach you so much stuff. Uh, and it, it is an echo of the ethos, I suppose, but that uh, realization only came much later. And then within the organization, we are incredibly open. Our board minutes are, are published with just minimal redactions to do with um, non-disclosure agreements and, and human resources law, minimal redactions um, every month. So internal openness is what allows the honesty out to the customer. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to get that in because mm -hmm. these va these values are a, an absolutely living dynamic within the organization. And so many people s spend time developing their values, but the leaders don't then realize just what gold dust they are. Yeah. Uh, that is, that is, if I had anyone listening to this, take one thing out is this stuff does make you money. Mm. <laughs> if that's, if that's what's important to you. It works. It really works. Altruism as a profit. That's the name of the book. Anyway, never mind. Uh, as a profit-making method. I'm not able to write a book. I'm not that, uh, that disciplined or clever. You heard it here first, guys. That's uh, yeah, very interesting. Very good. Uh, thank you. I mean, that's that's great. I've never heard somebody talk about tolerance in those terms before. There's something clicked when you were talking there, which um, I... I I won't steal it, but I'll certainly use the the essence of it going forward, I'm sure. And the other thing I would just like to say as well is um, I've seen many, many companies try and put things like Yammer in and it starts off great. And then after about two or three weeks, it crashes and burns. And I think um, within your organization, I remember asking a number of people that I sat with, you know, about Yammer because they were just constantly distracted by it, but in a really good way. <laughs> um, and it just seems to be the lifeblood that flows around the organization and it actually works, which I, um, you know, I, I found quite surprising if I'm, if I can be honest, because uh, I don't normally see that. I'll tell you what it is, the underlying uh, thing that people say to me uh, that they love about life search is that you're treated like a grown up. Uh, and therefore, we've never had a rule, or actually we might have had, and they might have stomped on it in 2012, that says you, you can't use a mobile phone in the office. Now, most people who work in call centers have, have lots of rules about what they can and can't do because it's seen as essential to productivity. 
I go into what you would think of as a call center when you've been there, and there are people on the phone at 11.30 in the morning. They're obviously texting someone about something that isn't work uh, because you don't get to work through your mobile phone. And um, I just actually it wasn't me it was again people who who uh, led me uh within the business he said just let it go treat them like grown-ups and they'll do the work uh after all it's not you know what more could we do set bigger budgets and, and beat them hard work make them work harder no just let them do that and if you think about how you work and i work we work to our own pace our own rhythm we work far harder we think than most people uh, and we deliver unbelievable results so Apply that to your customer faces and um, in the right cultural environment. Yeah, so they've got plenty of time to go on Yammer. They can yeah. take, you know, they can put down the phone to a customer and, and, and spend 15 minutes mucking around on social media and no one uh, no one tells them they shouldn't. In fact, mm. they're, encouraged, they're encouraged to on the internal stuff. Yeah, well said. Very interesting. A couple of other quick questions. I'm very conscious of time and I've, I've kept you a long time already, but can you give us a quick example of, of an experience that you've had that defines fantastic customer experience? So something that's happened to you that's left you thinking, God, that was good. Uh, I was going to say, sorry it's taken so long. I've given you plenty you can edit out, so that's all right. Rather than go for an example, uh, I want to make a point here that I think fantastic customer experience needs the fusion of tech and humanity the sort of bionic thing mm. the tech is wonderful but for all of us there is a point at which it doesn't work for us and the older we are or the whatever we are the more disabled we are the, the harder it will become the more quickly it will become hard it's at that point a true customer service would spend the money on having the people there to really help those who are confused. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so a fantastic customer experience for me is not a brilliant website with witty one-liners that makes me amused, uh, like like the jokes on the side of a, of a breakfast milk carton. That's all good stuff. And Slick Tech is wonderful when it works. It's when it doesn't work for you because of your own idiosyncrasies or, or your own just, you know, failing as a person what happens then what happens then and there is where you find the tech boys make their money the tech boys and girls make their money because uh yeah if they can just leave you overpaying on your subscription when you're not using it because you don't quite know how to get the best out of it that's mm. okay that's like insurance companies not wanting to get in touch with you in case you cancelled your direct debit just when you thought of them that old nonsense mm -hmm. so so no i see lots of good tech experiences and I, um, I guess I see lots of lots of good service experiences uh, delivered at a personal level. What Life Search is about, business now should be about, is combining the two. But for tech people to really understand how to run human support services properly, mm. that's that's not a uh, that's not a right brain thing. You've got to you've got to be far more creative and uh, uh, and empath empathic. Mm -hmm. that, uh, then you have to be when designing a great tech solution, in mm -hmm. my humble opinion. That's a great answer. Thank you. And maybe you won't give me an example, but how about a terrible experience that you think epitomizes the worst in, in organizations when they're delivering really poor experience? Can you think of something that's happened to you? Uh, you could fill in a web inquiry and, and uh, face 36 calls in 12 hours. That's what, one <laughs> of my, that's what one of my competitors will do to you. And um, yeah. I think that would just do it for me as an example of what the what the FCA should be stamping out. Yeah, but they aren't. Not even trying to. Okay, we won't go into who that is. So um, that's yeah. Okay, that is a perfect example, definitely. Okay, and um, tell me 
perhaps you could share something that you could never have learned at business school that you've learned in your time as a leader? Oh, Neil, I've blundered, mate. Because it says here in my list, tell him the altruism alchemy. <laughs> and I just did. <laughs> I, won't, I, I won't repeat it you can rewind and have another listen if you like I'll, I'll do that I'll, 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 re, I'll move it around don't worry perfect okay and, and then Tom just a, a final question before you go I mean looking forward and uh, by way of conclusion for this uh, this wonderfully rich conversation I mean how do you see consumerism or the rise of the customer evolving in I'm going to say your sector I mean in, in life assurance and in insurance um, do you think Technology, and I take your point entirely about combining the best of technology with, with humanity, but do you think technology will keep giving more and more choice to people? You know, what about people that don't have access to the technology or don't want to use it? How, how do you see this, this industry moving forward? Oh, Neil, that's too bad for me. I think technology is actually restricting choice uh, to some degree. I mean, where else can you shop but Amazon, really? I mean... You can, but it's just so good, so easy. That's that's just where it all goes. You know, even more. What what search engine do you use? There's no choice because the the leader is just so outstanding uh, and has the power and the wealth to become ever more outstanding. Mm. No, I, I think that, I think the globe has a, a a real challenge with what has happened, what tech has created. Tech has enabled vast mega businesses of a scale really never seen before to uh, to totally totally dominate markets and in the end that will be a bad thing <laughs> it just seems to be self-evident that will be a not good thing uh, and rather more you know the the the, uh, the rise of the totalitarian state and the huge power and ability china has is, is again a tech enabled challenge to, to humankind i think i think tech is essentially uh, at the moment supporting a slightly more totalitarian view of the world than it is uh, a, a peaceful democratic one Mm. Uh, and I think social media is proving um, uh, hugely challenging in that regard as well. Mm. So I'm not sure, I'm afraid, how we respond to this other than personally trying to seek to combine the tech and the human so that it delivers good individual results. Mm. But against uh, a tidal wave, uh, the scale of what we see from China and uh, Amazon and Google uh, and uh, relatively few others of power, not mm. sure. Not sure, really. No. Okay. What does all that mean to to life search? Does it mean more of the same, or what? What, what possibilities does that offer you? Well, Neil, what do you do when the enemy looks absolutely invincible? Absolutely invincible. And you talk of the enemy as a tidal wave, not the enemy of the, the battlefield as a tidal wave. You're, you're going to get drowned in it. You, what do you do? Well, I know what I do. I go grab my sword and charge into the middle of it just for fun. So <laughs> life search. Life search is expanding globally uh, as fast as it can, oh, which wow. is. Very slowly at the moment, we're building our uh, platform slash front end, a, a real-time quotation and purchase capability, and then ongoing servicing, uh, all online, but all uh, supported by humans for those who struggle to get through it, uh, which in protection will be many. Uh, and once that model, which is uh, complete end-to-end uh, -end in 2021, um, uh, is, is working and trading in the UK successfully, as we expect it to be, then we'll be whipping it off to other markets and signing up insurers to populate its back end and uh, conquering the globe. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to watching that. Brilliant news. Tom, thank you so much for um, for sharing so candidly a lot of stuff there. And I, I appreciate you you being so open about your culture and some of the things that you do. I found it fascinating. And um, you know what you've talked about there puts into practice so many of the theoretical things, to, to be honest with you, that I talk about with people half the time. So 
Brilliant. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. It's lovely, uh, lovely to talk to you after all these years. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll uh, speak to you again hopefully soon. Good stuff. Thanks, Tom. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.